0: In the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to Psalm 90? And we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Psalm 90, verses 1 through 12. And God speaks through the psalmist. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn, back, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your, in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it springs up new, but by evening, it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If you were here last week, or you may have heard uh, this week, Carrie had a, an accident um, week ago Thursday night, and I appreciate all your uh, expressions of concern. Uh, it really has felt like very much like a family, and we're we're really grateful. Brennan, our daughter, uh, and her two sons were here when Carrie had her accident. We were all together, and um, Carrie—I mean Brennan, our daughter—rode with Carrie in the ambulance uh, to the hospital. After they, they they got into the hospital and uh, I, I don't know it was an hour or so uh, later Brennan called me and I was staying with the grandkids and you know she wanted to check on them but then she had questions about um, the admission you know they were admitting Carrie and so Brennan had some questions so she asked me a couple of questions insurance kind of kinds of questions <clears throat> and then and then she said um, ask me dad does uh, does Does mom have an advanced directive? Advanced directive? That's like a living will. That's like saying, you know, if things don't go well and it doesn't look like I'm going to be in good shape, then don't do anything heroic. I said, advanced directive? You're kidding me. She said, now, Dad, they they ask everybody that. It's just a routine question. Well, I get that, but it was quite a jolt to have your wife in the hospital, and they call and ask, um, you know, if things don't go well, what do you want us to do? It was like, that was... It's kind of, quite a jolt uh, to hear that. We don't like to think about death. Of course, of course we don't. It's not a, it's not a pleasant uh, topic. But as, as part of this series, out of this world, I feel we must. After all, as one writer said, uh, the Bible's center of gravity uh, rests not in this life, but in the life to come. And James 4, 14 is true, of course. Our lives are like a mist, a vapor. It's like the morning fog. It appears for a little while and then it is gone. So this morning on All Saints Day, let's tackle this um, unpleasant topic of death, and I I wanna ask a series of questions and then I want to respond to each one. The first question is, do you know, I mean really know, that you're not gonna live forever on planet Earth? Do you really, do you really know? Now I ask that not to shock you and not to be dramatic, but it is simply truth uh, and it is healthy. To know, to acknowledge that we're not going to live here forever. We read a moment ago, teach us to number our days. Teach us, we might say today, that our days are numbered so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It will make us wise. If we live with a healthy sense of urgency, that's a good thing to know we're not going to be here forever. Max Lucado is a popular writer. Some of you have read his books. He tells the story of a boy and a man who went to the beach and built sandcastles. So the man went to the beach and he built his sandcastle right there at the edge of the water, as we always do, where the sand, of course, is still malleable. And so he built his sandcastle with the moats and the towers and so on. But it was as if he hadn't thought this through. It was as if it hadn't dawned on him that his sandcastle would not last forever. For eventually, and in the words of Max Lucado, the sun eases over the horizon and the tide eases toward the sandcastle. So he noticed, here comes the ocean moving toward my castle and the castle he knew could not survive the the onslaught of the sandy water, or the salty water, and so he, he became indignant and he became afraid and he tried to stop the unstoppable to prevent the, 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 the unpreventable. He, he stood between his sandcastle and the sea and tried to keep the sea from imposing itself on his sandcastle. He even cried, it's my castle. But he couldn't stop the unstoppable. He couldn't hold back the unhold backable. The the sea made its way to his castle and slowly but certainly the sandcastle dissolved beneath the weight of the tide. The man was, was beside himself. The little boy went to the beach and built a sandcastle. The same place right there where the near the near where the water meets the sand and he 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 dug the moats and he built the towers but he'd been to the beach before he knew how this works so he watched with wonder even not with delight not with not with delight but with wonder as he watched the tide slowly ease toward his masterpiece. He watched in wonder as the moats he had dug filled with the ocean and as, as the towers gently succumbed to the weight of the sea. And then when his castle was gone, he picked up his bucket, took the hand of his father and walked home. He knew what was coming. And was neither surprised nor indignant. The application to our our view of death, of course, is is obvious. But please understand, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't fight against death. I'm I'm going to ask the doctors to do everything they can to keep me here as long as they can. I've told you before, I'm still thinking about that tattoo on my chest that says, please try CPR one more time, don't give up on me yet. Because I love this life, and I think God wired us with this passion to live and and to revolt against death. I get that. I understand that. but, But it is also healthy to know, as much as we want to live, that we're not going to live forever on planet Earth. And the tide is easing toward all our sandcastles. Do you know, do you really know? I mean in a healthy sort of way. We're not going to be here forever. Do you know? Second question, are you afraid or will you be afraid of death? Now, I don't think you should beat yourself up if you're anxious I mean, it is the great unknown, of course, and so I don't think you ought to beat yourself up if you're anxious, or even if you'd have to admit, yes, I am a little bit afraid, because it is the great unknown. It is the the adventure that none of us has sailed on, but we don't have to be afraid. Many of you know Kathy and Joseph Hicks, Kathy's father was Bill Henson, Dr. Bill Henson, who was a nationally known Methodist minister. In fact, he he preached here when Dr. Langley was pastor before his death, Dr. Henson. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful writer and preacher. And I, uh, Kathy made the mistake of, of giving because I I so admire him. Kathy made the mistake of giving me some of his books. And like any good preacher, his children are in lots of the stories. So now I've got all these stories about Kathy Hicks now. One of them was from her when she was a little girl her pet cat her cat died and her her dad Dr. Henson called it replacement therapy they took her uh, to pick out another pet and so she picked out a -a peek-a-poo puppy and he wagged his tail so enthusiastically that Kathy named him happy Dr. Henson the dad was charged with building a doghouse for happy But now, Dr. Henson had grown up on a farm and the only kind of dogs he knew were bird dogs and hound dogs. And so all he knew was big dog houses. So he built this big dog house for this little bitty peek-a-poo puppy. But the little peek-a-poo puppy was afraid of the dog house. He, he He wouldn't go, not even in it, he wouldn't even go near it. They put his food in there. But little happy, he'd rather be hungry than go in that big, imposing, foreboding, dark, Dark, big, dark place. They put his water in there. Happy would rather be thirsty than go in that big, dark, foreboding place. Dr. Henson forced Happy into the doghouse, put his hands over the door so he couldn't get out. But every time he'd do that, as soon as he'd move his hands, Happy would burst the bolt out of the, that big, dark, imposing, frightening place. Well, Dr. Henson's dad finally gave up and went inside. He left poor Kathy outside, his little daughter out there, to cry at how impatient her father was and how scared her little puppy was. But Dr. Henson watched from the inside as something something really special happened. Kathy Kathy had an idea and she got down on her hands and feet and she crawled like a dog into that big imposing darkness, the doghouse. And happy trotted in right behind her and laid down as if he were at home, and soon, happy was asleep. By embracing death, Hebrews 2:15. By embracing death, taking it into himself, Jesus destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. That's from the message. It's simplistic, I know, but, but Jesus, Jesus went before us into that vast darkness, that foreboding place. As if to say it's okay. And something powerful happened there when he defeated the power of death and walked out the other side. And so we don't have to be afraid. I understand if you're anxious. That's, I think that's human. But we don't have to be afraid. Do you really know that you're not going to be here forever? Are you, are you or will you be afraid. Third question, what happens when we die? A a Texas pastor, a friend of mine was telling me this story. He was in a, a hospital room with a member of his church when she breathed her last breath. She was 53 years old. The physician was in there with her. So they were there until she died. And when she breathed her last breath, the doctor turned to the pastor and asked, What just happened? Now, the doctor knew physiologically, biologically, medically, he knew what happened. But he also knew that there's more than brain waves and heartbeats. So he turned to the pastor to ask, what just happened in that unseen world, mystically? What just really, really happened? So what happens when we die? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It sounds immediate. Jesus said to the thief on the cross who threw himself on Jesus' mercy, Jesus said, today, immediately, you will be with me in paradise. So it appears that that we, our souls, the core of who we are, it's as if we, we exhale on earth and inhale in God's presence it seems immediate. So it appears that we are immediately with God. Our souls are alive and awake and anticipating the second coming of Jesus. Because even though the Bible says we are immediately with God, the Bible also says in in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a resurrection of bodies, the saints, the bodies of saints. So, So think about that, bodies. Bodies that have been cremated, bodies buried at sea, bodies that have been in the cemetery so long that they are long since dust again. And the tombstones above them have long since crumbled. Those bodies and the bodies barely cold, resurrection of those bodies, which means places like Maple Hill, man, that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a lively place one of these days. So how do, we, how do we harmonize these two that we're immediately with God and yet when Jesus comes back, there's this resurrection of the bodies. Most evangelical biblical scholars who are smarter than I would say that we, are, we exist in this intermediate state, that our souls are alive and alert with God and anticipating that day when Jesus will come and the resurrection of the bodies when we are joined again with these new bodies. And Philippians 3 said those new bodies are going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. Think about that body. It was not limited by time or space. It was flawless. It was ageless. It was deathless. It was touchable. It was visible. And on a day like today, the most important thing, it was recognizable. They knew him when they saw him in this resurrected body, which is why I believe we will recognize those we love in heaven. So what happens when we die? It appears that our spirits, the core of who we are, we're with God immediately and then awaiting that day when we will be reunited, how we will live forever in that new glorified, that's a biblical term, glorified and resurrected body. Now some people think that that we sleep, that we simply go to sleep and we awaken in God's presence on the day when Jesus returns, as if no time had passed. And that may be, you know, when you go to sleep at night and you wake up the next morning, it's as if no time had passed. So maybe we sleep until, as if no time passed, we awaken in God's presence at the return of Jesus. But the picture the Bible seems to paint is this awareness, this intermediate state, this t- in-between time when we are, our souls are, are with our creator. And then, and then we get these new wonderful bodies at the, at the return of Jesus. That, I believe, is what happens when we die. Do you really know that you're not going to be here forever? That do you really recognize the tide is is unstoppable, and it's, it's easing toward all our sandcastles. Are you afraid, or will you be afraid? I'm not asking if you're anxious, but are you? We don't have to be afraid. What happens? I, I just told you what I believe the Bible says happens when we, when we die. Let me ask you one final question. What will your funeral be like? That's an odd question, I know. I'm not talking about where it will be held, or what the order of service will be. But what will your funeral be like? What will people say? What will they remember? When the minister is speaking, what stories will be playing on the tapes in their memories? What will you be remembered for? I believe the the most important opinions at my funeral will be those of those people who sit on the first two or three rows. What will your funeral be like? As long as we're talking seriously, we might as well speak candidly. And I was still a, a young pastor when I was asked to do a funeral I, I, I was green, I was inexperienced, but of course I wanted to do a good job. But I had a dilemma. This person whose funeral I was asked to conduct had come to the church with some friends, but I, I didn't know about her ultimate spiritual condition. I, I could not speak confidently about her conversion. I didn't know. I knew she'd come to church, but I didn't know if she'd had a conversion experience. I didn't know if she was a follower of Jesus. I didn't know if she had experienced that change so dramatic. Jesus called it a new birth. I didn't know if she'd been saved. I didn't know if... If, if her hope was in Jesus and not her own goodness, I, did, I just didn't know for sure. And yet I wanted to speak words of comfort. And of course, words of heaven are words of comfort. So I wanted to do that. I was, I, it was a real dilemma. So I went to one of my professors, my seminary professors, and I told him my dilemma and asked, what should I do? What he said to me uh, is, is indelibly etched in my memory. He said, never say anything at a funeral you would contradict in a revival. Which I interpreted like this. If you're going to revival and you say, you got to be saved, you got to trust Jesus, you got to be converted in order to get into heaven, then don't go to a funeral and act like we all go. <clears throat> and so you know that question that sometimes some of us learned to ask when we were learning how to share our faith that question, you know, if you were to arrive at heaven's gates and God were to ask you, "Why should I let you in?" Then the only the only appropriate answer is, "Because my hope is in Jesus." What will your funeral be like? To talk about as death, I find stories uh, to be helpful, at least least they're helpful to me. So let me close with one final story, this told uh, by Charles Allen, a great Methodist minister. John Todd was orphaned as a little boy. Both his parents died. This was in the early 1800s. And as was the practice in the early 1800s, the kids, there were several brothers and sisters, they were farmed out to family members to raise them. John Todd's aunt invited John Todd to come live at her house. She would, she would bring him up. John Todd's aunt sent a messenger, her servant, named Caesar to pick up John Todd. John Todd, a little boy, was grieving and afraid. But John Todd jumped up on the horse with um, Caesar and put his little arms sitting behind Caesar, put his little arms around Caesar's waist. And on the way to his aunt's house asked a million questions. Questions that that reflected his fear. Will she be there? Oh, yes, Caesar assured her. She'll be there waiting for you. Will I like living with her? My son, you have fallen into good hands. Will she love me? Ah, she has a big heart. Do you think she'll go to bed before we get there? Oh, no. She'll be sure to wait up for you. You'll see when we get out of these woods, you'll see her candle in the window. Sure enough, after a long journey, they, they emerged from the woods to see John Todd's aunt's house in the distance. And sure enough, there was a candle in the window and there stood the figure of John Todd's aunt on the porch. And When they, when they neared the house and John Todd was let down from the horse, he walked timidly up to the porch where his aunt reached down and tenderly kissed him and said welcome home. She took him in for a big supper she'd prepared and then sat on his bedside as John Todd drifted off to sleep. John Todd grew up there. His aunt became a wonderful mother to him. As an adult he followed a calling to be a pastor and that calling took him far Uh, from his aunt's house. Then one day he received a letter from his aunt. A letter telling him of her failing health. In fact, she was dying. And she asked her pastor nephew, what will death be like? He wrote in response and reminded her of his story. Do you remember How afraid I was when you sent your messenger to get me. Do you remember how, as I came out of the woods, I saw uh, the candle in the window? Do you remember how you reached down and you kissed me? And you said, welcome home. Remember the supper you had waiting for me? Do you remember sitting on the side of my bed as I drifted off to sleep? And he wrote, you probably realize why I'm recalling all this to your memory. Someday soon, God will send for you to take you to a new home. Do not fear the summons, the journey, or the dark messenger of death. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me so many years ago. At the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome waiting. And you will be safe in God's care. I shall watch you and pray for you until you are out of sight. And then wait for the day when I shall make the journey myself. And find you waiting at the end of the road to greet me. Don't fear the summons the journey, or the dark messenger of death, he wrote. At the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome waiting.